Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Spin Class. We're talking politics. I'm your host, Michael Fragan, here on the Nachum Siegel Network, NachumSiegel.com, and around the world on Arucheva, Israel, national news slash radio. And welcome to another morning of political talk. We are sponsored by the S4 Group, S4GRP.com. Sign up for a weekly newsletter on politics and policy. S4 is a full-service communications, lobbying, government relations, public relations firm with offices around the country. Check them out once again. And, well, we're post-Wisconsin. And guess what? It's time for New York, folks. It's time for New York. Can you hear Frank Sinatra in the background just kind of crooning? When has New York ever mattered in a Republican presidential primary? Can't think of a time. Now, it has mattered on the Democratic side. And we can remember back in 1992, I believe 1988. Yeah, even I can remember back that far. That New York has actually mattered during that time. But for both parties new york matters at the same time so we got kind of two weeks of well just new york primary and it's it's really going to be fascinating to see how this rolls out because not only do we have a new york primary we also have essentially not one not two but three hometown candidates and you might be thinking okay who are the three hometown candidates well trump is the obvious one right trump is a hometown he still lives here and you have Bernie Sanders from Brooklyn, now lives in Vermont, but you know that's some New York cred. It should be just as much credibility as Hillary Clinton, who grew up every, who was everywhere else until she decided to pick New York State to run for Senate and then became a New Yorker. And that's fine. I'll give her the New Yorker part. She did represent New York in Congress, in the Senate. So let her be a New Yorker too. So three New Yorkers running simultaneously, and it's really just going to be fascinating as to how this whole thing shakes out because there's so many dynamics at play. You have your urban, suburban, rural all rolled in together, media capital of the world. You've got Trump and all that represents, uh, and we'll go into it in a second, as to how he kind of reshapes his campaign post-Wisconsin. And just all those things going on in parallel, possibly attacking each other, using each other as a foil, and then how do Cruz and Kasich kind of play at the same time with all these New Yorkers knowing how to suck up all the oxygen here? And we've seen a little bit from Kasich and Cruz. You know, they kind of, they came to this town a little bit early, even. Kasich was already even in the pre-Wisconsin uh, phase, even before Wisconsin was done, he was already in New York. Maybe that's why he didn't do quite so well in Wisconsin. Picked up no delegates. And, you know, certainly Cruz is doing some interesting things, and we'll get to that as well. But right now, really, what the point here is there's 95 delegates on the Republican side. It's kind of odd the way they are apportioned, which makes it particularly interesting three delegates for each congressional district and then another 14 i believe for the winner of the state and if you get 50 percent in any of these 
congressional districts, you get all three delegates. If you get less than that, then they're shared with the other ones. So certainly I would imagine that Donald Trump is going for a knockout blow, try and get 50% statewide, uh, win the states, as well as try at the same time to get that 50% threshold in each of the congressional districts. And we'll see if he can do that. It's certainly possible. I think uh, Cruz certainly seems to have a strategy to try and stop him. And again, we'll get into that. But let's talk about the Democrats for a second, because the Democrats are particularly fascinating right now. And why? what is so fascinating about this Democratic race? Not that it pits two New Yorkers one against the other. I talked about it, the fact that the inability of Hillary to put away Bernie Sanders, but that's not just it. It's not just about the fact that he won't go away. It's about the fact that he really, for all intents and purposes, cannot win the nomination, at least on the pledge delegate side. He's too far behind. The Democrats do everything proportionally. So even if you win, he can't win big enough. He won big in Wisconsin, but only picked up 10 delegates, and he needs 200 to overtake her. So leave superdelegates aside. He really doesn't seem to be able to win, and it's not clear that he can even stop her from getting, stop Hillary from getting the requisite delegates. But what does he have? Well, he has momentum. He's won six out of the last seven contests, and he continues to win, and voters continue to like him, and a lot of voters continue, or at least continue, well, I don't know if it's continue, they just don't like Hillary Clinton. And that seems to be the case of the Democratic Party, particularly with the voters. Not with the establishment. Establishment's there. The establishment is attacking Sanders in many cases. But you have a lot of people who just cannot come around to Hillary. And, of course, that'll have potentially its own general election dynamic as to how that goes. The same way that there are on each side now... The two frontrunners are wildly unpopular. We've discussed that. And I don't mean wildly unpopular like, okay, they're everybody hates them. I mean wildly unpopular is like they have the highest unfavorables you can imagine somebody running for president with. I mean, they're just astronomically high if from any pundit's perspective. But you should also acknowledge you can go a lot of places around the state, individual polling by race, different congressional races where they're polling the favorables and unfavorables uh, as a standard practice, the favorables and the unfavorables of individual potential top-of-the-ticket people. And from what I understand in a lot of places is that not only is you know Trump have high unfavorables in some of these polls, but also Hillary has incredibly unfavorables in some of these polls. So that will play out because, of course, the conventional wisdom is, well, if it's on a congressional level – and even other down-ballot races, such as the state Senate in New York and the like, is that if Hillary's on the ballot, it's going to be a huge outpouring of support for the local person. Now, that might be the case in New York City, but I'm not sure around the state she is as popular as many people think she is or she should be. And that will come into play. Now, certainly the establishment is going to have to go all out to ensure that Hillary Clinton does not lose her adopted home state. And that native son Bernie Sanders is going to have the support of the Working Families Party. We'll have to see you know, how much the Working Families Party will influence this race to be up against a juggernaut like Clinton. 
and that establishment support. Once again, they are bucking the establishment here in New York. And, you know, it's interesting. I've always found the dynamic interesting. The Working Families Party is a separate party, yet some Democrats treat the Working Families Party as if they're an appendage of the party or kind of the liberal wing of the party. But they're not. They're really just a separate party altogether, meaning people who are enrolled in the Working Families Party cannot vote in a Democratic primary. But they always seem to be trying to influence the direction of the Democrats and to influence Democratic Party politics for that. So a little interesting New York tidbit. You don't have that in a lot of the states. You know, just to keep in mind, why does New York have all these smaller parties? And you know, this is a little bit in the weeds, but it's important to note. You know, you have other these other parties, Conservative Party, the Reform Party, Working Families Party, Independence Party. Those people can't vote in any of these primaries. So, but they can't come out you know, for general elections, of course. But they have voters enroll in these parties, and New York allows fusion voting. That means that they add up all the lines of the candidates on and they add those out up and therefore they find the winner based on that, all those different ballot lines. And it, it gives these minor parties a tremendous amount of sway. Some say it's a terrible system. Some say it's got to go and it, it engenders corruption. Well, I'm not going to take any judgment on that. It definitely makes New York politics all the more interesting and perhaps it is outdated, but we'll leave it at that. So Bernie Sanders of Brooklyn goes straight into the buzzsaw of New York politics by walking to the Nelly News editorial board. And, well, he had a rough night, rough day, rough night, a whole bunch of different questions, especially on a signature issue, breaking up the banks. Couldn't really come up with a solution as to how he was going to do that. But what really troubled me was in trouble a lot of other people was his inability to really focus well on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, ask a couple questions about whether Israel should be a Jewish state and the like. He says, well, of course, I'm against terrorism and that I Israel should definitely be a Jewish state. But he also made a reference to the fact that he thought, he didn't have an exact number, but he thinks, he remembers, he thinks it's right, it sounds like the right number, that 10,000... Gazans, 10,000 Palestinian Arabs were killed during the, the last Gaza conflict. 10,000. 10,000. So Sanders, who has you know bucked the pro-Israel trend, of course, of traditional presidential candidates, is willing to be outside the mainstream on that issue, didn't attend APAC, uh, gave a speech that, well, we probably wouldn't have been so well received there. But... Uh, uh, well, he gave it from Utah, so I guess that was a safe distance for him to give that uh, forgive that speech. Ten thousand was his number, and what I'm appalled by is not the fact that he thought it was ten thousand has in his mind this really would have been an incredibly anti-Israel type number. But given the fact that if you look and you know, I hate to kind of measure the casualties, but that really what it's all, what it's all about. And of course, he said ten thousand innocent civilians. Anybody who talks about it, they know, or they can't specifically delineate how many Palestinians were innocent, how many of them were combatants, how many of them were civilians. So it's kind of unclear about that. But he decides ten thousand innocent civilians. If you look at you know again measuring the casualties, not necessarily the nicest thing to do. 
I don't think you can get anywhere close to 10,000, probably half of that, maybe 6,000, I think is numbers that I saw, of Palestinians killed in the whole Second Intifada. That dates back from 2000 or 2001. Uh, so his number is just so far off, so far just having no conceptual reality. So that what bothers me is just his total cluelessness on this issue. It's as if he's done no homework. It's as if he walks in there and just thinks, oh, I'm not going to get answer, asked a question about Israel, so I'll just wing it. I'm not going to get asked a question about the banks, so I'll just wing it. It's as if he did no preparation at all. And, you know, Bernie, you want to be taken seriously. You want to be talking about serious policy issues. You want to be the leader of the country. You want to go ahead and fill up that left flank uh, for the democratic socialist and be the flag bearer. Don't you have to be a little bit more serious? Don't you give so much credence to Hillary's criticism of you that you are a one-issue pony, that you're a one-trick pony, you have nothing else to say? And you also bash Trump all the time for not being serious and not having serious policies. Well, if you are unable to establish coherent foreign policy and really talk about it in a serious way and have a serious conversation, it's like you didn't do any preparation. And we already have a candidate out there who doesn't do any preparation for these interviews. So that's a great segue into Trump and a great segue into what happened to Trump in Wisconsin. The uh, the week, I'd say week from, well, we can't say the word here. Uh, you know, it's a family network, Nachum Siegel Network, so I don't want to say it's the week from bleep, so for Donald Trump, but that's what happened. I mean, he, you know, Donald Trump had in the Chris Matthews interview, and I love Chris Matthews interviewing style, even though I don't love Chris Matthews, uh, certainly from, you know, I don't think he's particularly great on Israel. I don't think he's particularly great on, you know, foreign policy issues that I care about. But I like his interviewing style. I like the interruptions. I like him trying to get at the answer, you know, get at an answer and not let anybody get away with fudging it. And he actually said it during that abortion exchange with Trump when he said, you can't, he said, Exactly. Uh, he said, yeah, well, you can't dodge this. And so, of course, Trump's on the defensive. He wanted, didn't want to dodge. And then he said, well, that the woman, of course, should be punished. Which, I mean, pause for a second. Shock. Jaw drop. Think about it. It's crazy. And what bothers me is not that he got the answer wrong or that he had to clarify and everything, but I really legitimately thought, if you look at Trump's face at the time, that he thought he gave the right answer. That he thought, yeah, that's probably what pro-life people, the pro-life camp wants to, you know, that's what they want to hear. They want to hear a more extreme position than anybody else is out there because he wants to be an extreme issue. That's, to me, that's the bigger story here, is that Trump thinks that a pro, he, he's so ignorant of the issue. He's so not a conservative. He's so not self-pro-life. I don't care what he keeps saying. He, I don't think he actually believes it. And, you know, I'm not, you know, as an Orthodox Jew, I'm not necessarily in the fully in the pro-life camp. It's very difficult to be. There's all kinds of things that we, you know, we believe which are different than the pro-life camp. But I'd say generally on the whole, you know, pro-life, pro-life is probably certainly more than pro-choice. I, I can't, you know, abide by some of the, you know, where the pro-choice movement is. But I think the fact that Trump feels, it made me squirm, it made me feel uncomfortable that Trump thinks that somebody would want to punish the mother. 
in this instance. It's just, I, I struggle with the fact that that is what he thinks. And once again, he's proven that it's a caricature of what a conservative would be, right? That Trump is trying, if you had to find somebody who was going to cast a poor light on conservatives, on all these hot-button issues, on immigration, on Islam, on foreign policy, on abortion now, on Common Core and cutting the federal government. It's just everything of intolerance, generally, of the angry white man, males, and all these issues. You would think that Donald Trump is putting the conservative movement into tremendous disrepute and really damaging damaging conservatives for you know could be for quite some time. Now fortunately it seems from Wisconsin that a lot of voters woke up to this and have realized that Donald Trump is not a conservative. He's not going to be a conservative. He is a populist, was a big difference. I think he has a message. I'm not gonna deny that there are voters as a message but populism and conservatism are two different things and you know for those people who are ideological about it just the same way i think that you know bernie sanders socialism and hillary clinton's liberalism if you will are also different things i mean there's just they're just qualitatively different we can acknowledge and celebrate our differences along those lines but Trump is really causing the conservative movement a tremendous crisis uh, in that regard. So now what happens? Okay, so Trump gets beat, and he gets beat pretty badly, uh, even though up to a couple hours before the election, I watched him and saying that he was going to win, and he could bring it home, and there's going to be a big surprise, but of course that didn't happen, and it wasn't even close, and it was as if at, it really cut across all demographic groups, that Ted Cruz did exceptionally well. John Kasich really disappeared. You would have figured that John Kasich could win one, even two congressional districts, moderate Republicans, and there just doesn't seem to be any room for moderates in this race. And John Kasich is not exactly a moderate. He's not exactly a moderate as governor. He is has been pretty conservative. He's pretty conservative in Congress. But the issue here, and we alluded to this last week, you know, with the pillars of the Republican Party, the pillars of the conservative movement, you know, the social, the uh, the foreign policy, as well as economic. And you have a party where the party elites, where the party leadership, where the establishment has, for the last couple decades, or uh, it has staked out positions that seem to be very at odd with the base. And maybe they didn't realize they were very at odds with the base. But... By and large, the establishment has been pro-tax cuts, has been anti the welfare system, uh, has been for shrinking government, has been for increased immigration, not necessarily illegal immigration, but increased immigration altogether, and has been for pro-growth economic policies that have been pro-free trade, as well as interventionist foreign policy. Well, it seems that the base really either didn't realize what was going on or thought they would benefit from that, and they just have not, and have gotten frustrated with the fact that white Americans are no longer going to be a, major- a majority of the country, and they're looking to reclaim some of that power. But in the end, it seems that a lot of Republicans out there 
we're not seeing the benefits of free trade, or so they're not particularly enamored with free trade. They're not particularly enamored with deep tax cuts for the wealthy that will slash the welfare system because you know many of them are benefiting from it. They're not necessarily for an interventionist foreign policy, at least not in certain cases, although I think you know, terrorism here at home has motivated a certain amount of interventionist foreign policy. You know, you kind of see the wing of that part of the party on both sides on that issue. But there's kind of this epiphany, there's kind of this realization that the base and the establishment and the base and the elites, whoever you want to call it, the, the Chamber of Commerce types and the more conservative types are not simpatico right now and that's really the fissure where the republican party has to deal with it's not necessarily donald trump himself it's the voters that he leads who you know may or may not you know there's there's the donald trump the show and then there's donald trump the extreme person who takes these extreme positions at least extreme for the republican party and where that leads so now we take New York, we walk into New York, and it's April 19th coming up very soon. we got a week and a half to go. What do the candidates do? Well, immediately Ted Cruz goes to the Bronx and has uh, a little lunch at, um, I don't know what kind of restaurant it was. It might have been a Cuban restaurant, but who knows, with Ruben Diaz Sr., state senator, who is a also who is the father of the Bronx Borough president, who's a Democrat, Ruben Diaz Senior is a conservative Democrat, but leads many Latino ministers. And in the South Bronx, he's in the South Bronx doing that. And why would Ted Cruz go to the South Bronx? How many conservative Republicans are there in the South Bronx? Well, if you think about it, and you know how many voters really came to this thing, and Ruben Diaz Sr., of course, is a Democrat. He's not voting for Ted Cruz, even if he endorses him. How many Republicans out there? Well, truth is, I've always said this. I said this from the beginning. Ted Cruz has a strategy. He's been very strategic about the entire thing, and you got to assume I'm not making any. I'm not making, and this is not based on my uh, thorough uh, vetting of their strategy documents, but this is the basic assumption because tomorrow, I mean, sorry, t- later today, he's going to uh, he's going to a matzah bakery. Uh, lots of bakery down at Brighton Beach, down in Southern Brooklyn, so we can figure out what is the connection with you. And then he's also going to be at a school up in Albany, and he is going to heavily Democratic districts, not the Republican districts that Donald Trump is hanging out in, or the, or John Kasich went to some Republican areas, but he's going to Democratic areas. So why would he go to Democratic areas? Well, everybody, you know, we all talk about the one principle of one man, one vote, but New York is apportioning their delegates based on congressional district. And when you take each congressional district, there is not, there certainly are not the same amount, uh, same number of registered Republicans in each congressional district in New York. In fact, you have many congressional districts, particularly in New York City, where you have to go very far, quite a few blocks to find your local Republican, your local New York City Republican. It just isn't that easy. It's not like living here in Lawrence, where pretty much you can get. 
uh, every single, every, you know, every other person is going to be a Republican and other, elsewhere uh, in the state. And, you know, Trump probably has a lot of the upstate locked up, given Carl Palladino and his operation and others. It's tough to play. So Cruz has decided, I'm going to go to South Bronx. And look at these numbers, and I went through the numbers, and it's quite incredible when you go down some of the New York City congressional districts to see how many registered Republicans are there. And I'm talking about active versus inactive, inactive voters, people who haven't voted in a couple of years. They're still on the rolls, but they haven't been removed. But if you look at it, it's quite incredible. If the 15th congressional district, which is the South Bronx, Jose Serrano, has only 13,468 as of 2014, that's the last time they, they ran these numbers, uh, have 13,468 registered and active Republicans. That means they voted in the last couple of years. Uh, how many will show up in a primary? I, you know, if usually in a primary, you know, 20% turnout is going to be high. Uh, you know, you're talking about potentially a total turnout of less than 3,000. So if Cruz can get Oh, yeah, and I would say it's probably going to be lower than that because a lot of these Republicans are not used to ever having a primary because they might not even have a Republican ever running on the ticket for local races. So that's unlikely to, to be particular. And even go some of the others, the 13, Charlie Rangel's district, only 17,000, less than 18,000 total. Uh, the 10th congressional district, which is Jerry Nadler, 45,000. Okay, the 9th congressional district, which is uh, <clears throat> Yvette Clark. 29,000. The 8th, 31,000. It's Hakeem Jeffries. That's where Cruz is going. Uh, later on to the Matzo Bakery, Brighton Beach, many of the Russian Jewish voters in that area are actually registered Republicans, as opposed to many of the Orthodox Jews in southern Brooklyn, uh, Borough Park, Flatbush, and maybe you know sometimes even Williamsburg, who vote Republican on a regular basis, but many of them register as Democrats in order so that they can vote in local races. And when you register as a Democrat, you can't vote in the Republican primary, even if you want the Republican candidate to win. You could be a Ted Cruz supporter, you can be a John Kasich supporter, you could be a Donald Trump supporter, but if you are not a registered Republican, you cannot vote in the primary. But if you look at these numbers, uh, the 7th Congressional District, which is Nidia Velasquez, which includes Williamsburg and uh, the Lower East Side and uh, parts of other, other parts, 24,000 total uh, registered Republicans. The 6th Congressional District, Grace Meng, 51,000. That's a little bit high. That's on the high side. Who knows? But 33,000 in Greg Meeks, Nassau, and Queens district. Actually, that one actually includes a lot of Orthodox communities as well. Far Rockaway, as well as Jamaica Estates, parts of Kew Gardens, uh, Inwood in Nassau County, North Woodmere, I believe as well. So there are a lot of Orthodox Jews in that congressional district. And Ted Cruz is going heavily after them by going and doing some of those events. So Ted Cruz is thinking, okay, I'm going to pick off some of these congressional, if I can get one, two, three, you know, just get a thousand, 2,000 you know, voters in there, I can pick up some delegates, maybe even win a congressional district or two in some of these places where the turnout is likely to be incredibly low. Where And again, nobody's ever done this before because as we started the show by saying, we started this talking about this, 
Nobody can remember the last time the Republican vote was in play in New York on a presidential basis. It's exciting, heady times for New York Republicans when they're thinking, wow, I really feel wanted. Well, imagine if you're one of those voters in, let's say, in Jose Serrano's 15th congressional district, you know, one of those 13,000. I imagine you're going to be getting quite a bit of mail and quite a few phone calls if the candidates are smart, if these campaigns are smart, to try and win your vote and win your eternal love that you will come out on April 19th in order to support one of them. So that's really, that's the strategy. That's really what it comes down to. And it really makes sense that, you know, to certainly do, um, you know, to do that if you are looking at how to counter and make sure that Donald Trump doesn't walk away from New York with 95 delegates. So that's it for another week of political talk here on Spin Class, sponsored by the S4 Group, S4GRP.com. Sign up for the weekly newsletter on politics and policy. Thanks for joining us here on the Nachum Siegel Network, and stay tuned for Jew in the City Speaks. Have a great day.